In the reading corner today, my guest is Anne Fine. Now, Anne is the author of books for children and young adults. She's also the double recipient of the Carnegie Medal for Goggle Eyes in 1990, for which she also picked up the Guardian Fiction Prize and Flower Babies in 1992. She's a former children's laureate from 2001 to 2003, during which time she advocated for children's access to books at home. Today, we're talking about Shades of Scarlet, published by David Fickling and now available in paperback. Scarlet is mad with her parents. Mum has moved out of the family home at what appears initially to be the drop of a hat, and she's taken Scarlet with her. Scarlet's dad appears to offer no resistance. Perhaps his family are not worth fighting for. Scarlet is stuck in the middle, and as far as she's concerned, both her parents are behaving badly. And then Scarlet's mum gives her a bright new shiny notebook in which she can record her feelings. A little introduction to the book there, Anne, but if you were introducing the book, what would you have said that I didn't say there? Well, not very much. I mean, I think you have introduced the book well. I mean, I I would say about Scarlett that she is on the cusp of that sort of strange teenage age where, um, you know, if a, if a small child resents what's happening to them, uh, you're often a little bit more suspicious about whether they're justified in it. Well, what is interesting about Scarlett is that she's reached the age where she's often, quite often right. And this is what going to um, annoy her parents most, or certainly her mother is going to find particularly difficult. Because when, um, when a, a marriage falls apart, I think everybody likes to think that they have behaved about as well as they could possibly have done. I mean, we all need to feel that, don't we? And Scarlett's got this sort of clear-sighted, beady-eyed teenage look, and she's looking at both her parents with a, a clarity that both of them are finding very, very uncomfortable. I find that the most interesting time in teenage because you know, to put it bluntly, teenagers can be exhausting. But sometimes a teenager will cut through with such honesty and such accuracy that it absolutely floors you as a parent. And that is what happens to these parents through through this book. She's not always right. And she doesn't have the qualities that an adult has, you know, sort of a she could do with a bit more compassion and a bit more of a sense of proportion but she's not always wrong. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that does emerge as we go through is that the adults don't always live by the same standards that they expect from her. So there's one incident where both Scarlett and her mum are keeping a secret from each other. Scarlett's wagging school and Scarlett's mum has gone off from a day off work, but neither of them has told each other. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so all that self-righteousness has, has, has to actually, you know, fall apart and, and, and gradually through the book. I mean, this is what I liked about the book, that gradually as they came to um, uh, recognise each other's uh, justices, um, th- this understanding between them developed so that at the end, I mean, it is a, a, a very positive ending, 
But I mean, it comes up at other times. There's another time when um, mum is very scathing about um, Scarlett's feelings and more or less implies that she's got very young, childish feelings. And and Scarlett is absolutely scathing back and says, well, what about adult feelings? You know, you feel you think you have to do this and and you think you have to do that. But that's exactly what you told me. When I wanted a horse, you told me I'd never be happy again if I didn't have a horse. <laughs> and I got over it. And here's you saying you'd never be happy again, more or less, unless you split up from dad. Uh, but you would have got over it. You know, so she's throwing stuff back at her mother that her mother has actually fed her, you know, hurling the stone she was given kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, people in glass houses in this book. I didn't realise until after I'd finished it quite how balanced it was as a battle. I wanted to make some connections because this isn't the first time that you've written about a family breakup. And I could see lots of connections between Shades of Scarlet and Goggle Eyes. Mm. I'm intrigued to know what led you to revisit this subject and whether you set out to do something different with Scarlet's story. I don't ever, when I start a book, I, I don't ever really know um, where it's going to go. I tend to feel my way through a book. And something had come to mind from when one of my children was a teenager and we'd all been having a dinner party. And to be honest, we'd, we'd been talking about euthanasia. Uh, and this was years and years and years ago. And she said, oh, well, nobody in Britain will be able to think about euthanasia sensibly till all you lot are dead. And I said, excuse me, I beg your pardon. You know, she's only passing through the kitchen. And she said, yes, because every time anybody tries to discuss euthanasia, all of you who remember about Hitler and everything that happened in the 30s, the conversation just gets bogged down with that sort of stuff. You can't think about it clearly and you won't. Nobody will be able to think about it clearly until you're all gone. And then she just walked out of the room and we adults just stared at each other. And it came to mind about three years ago because all of a sudden this business of easeful death came up again, just as all the people who fought in that war are popping their clogs, as it were. um, It is being discussed sensibly for the first time on the actual issues and not on some bugbear of Hitler and what he did. And I, I was just reminded of the perspicacity that she had had. And the book has nothing to do with euthanasia. It has nothing to do with it. There isn't even a dinner party in it. But it is interesting that it is this sort of image that sets off a book. Um, you, you have either a sentence or an echo of something you hear or, or something you see that just sets off the book. And from then on, everything you read, everything you see seems to have some bearing on it and you gathering fuel for the book basically how interesting so I'm going to come back to that question but I'm going to ask it in a slightly different way and that is having read the book then did you see some of the connections that I saw with goggle eyes well the lippy daughter um and and I have tried so often to write teenagers who aren't lippy who don't argue back And I absolutely cannot do it, just like I can't write wet mothers. 
And people say there has to be a finger of you in all of your characters. I mean, nobody in my family isn't lippy. Nobody in my ex-husband's family isn't lippy. All of my children are lippy as anything, you know. They So, so it's terribly hard for me to do it. On the, I have done it with only two characters, and I've made them both boys, interestingly. You know, one is um, Ali in The Stone Menagerie. That is a very autobiographical novel in a funny psychological way. Mm. And the other is um, Tom in Round Behind the Ice House, which is, I think, the most personal book I've ever written. And and they are both people who don't talk back. I don't know, maybe I'm a bit sexist, maybe it's a bit gendery, but I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Which brings me slightly to uh, another point, which people often talk about humour in your writing, but I never feel when I read you that you're trying to write comedy. I always feel that this is more to do with a perspective on life. I, I think, you know, this this saying, the author is the book. I think that my personality just keeps coming out. And I think that the difference, the, the weirdness of it is that I have an extremely black and dark view of the world. And I'm a dreadful worrier. And I still bite my fingernails till they bleed. And yet I have a very, very cheerful disposition. So I think that's why things end up either as comedies, if I'm in a very good mood for writing, or as black comedies, if I'm not. Um, I loved reading comedy as a child. I loved Jennings. I loved William. Anything that will make me laugh. And so, for example, in Shades of Scarlet, there's this lovely, lovely um, bit where they're doing um, uh, a communications class. And one of the children has to describe something without showing a picture of it. And the partner has to try and draw it. And and they come to blows. I mean, within actual seconds, they're almost ready to thump each other because she thinks that his description is pathetic and he thinks she's being, you know, stupid, not understanding exactly what he's saying, even though it's close, incomprehensible. And this is something that one of my daughters came home with from university where she had done this experiment when she was doing psychology at university And she was extremely funny about it. So I do steal funny things that happen around me. I certainly recognise a good laugh when I see one. I want to come to talk a little bit about the way in which the book is written. The diary is a very interesting device, I think, very different from a straightforward first-person narration. I wondered whether you had any thoughts about the way that affects the way the reader is invited to engage with the story? Well, of course, the curious thing about the book is that she never actually writes anything in it at all. She is deeply suspicious when she's given this absolutely beautiful blank book. She just thinks that her mother is very cunningly encouraging her to keep a diary of her, she feels, that that her mother is going to creep upstairs and find and read. And so she hides it and she never actually uh, writes in it at all. And right at the end, she gives the book that her mother gave her back to her, thinking that she needs it more. Mm. And then she persuades her dad at the end to buy her 
the rainbow one. And then mm. when they have moved and everything is sorted and calm and she's out of the maelstrom, then she sits and starts to tell the story in that way that I think is the way the best stories are told, you know, now set down this, set down this. And she just tells it from the beginning all the way through to the end. One thing that mum says to Scarlett, which stands out as a really strong statement, and I thought one that can be viewed from multiple perspectives, she says that everyone gets one life, just one. And it's difficult if you come to realise that you're not living it the right way. There's a sort of, yes, I understand that, but there's also a sort of selfishness to it, isn't there? Oh, yes. And at another time, she makes exactly the same point, doesn't she, about that she's using the bricks of her own life to build Scarlet's life. You know, that sort of self-sacrificial life. There's a beautiful poem by somebody that says, you know, here is a life. It hasn't been used. I give it to you, my daughter. I pass it on. And I think in order to break out of being a parent in the way that we think is ideal, i.e., providing security to a child right until they're completely grown up and left home. So I think you do have to have an element of determination and selfishness to break out of that. You do. And I think mum is in that frame of mind when it happens. And she is being pretty selfish, isn't she? She is. It put me in mind of the Joni Mitchell song, Do you know the Joni Mitchell song, Shades of Scarlet? Nay. Shades of Scarlet conquering, and the final lines are, a woman must have everything, and it's referencing Scarlet O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. Yeah, It's not like that, but I thought that was interesting. No, that is interesting. No, No, I haven't heard the song. I do think one of the things that was in my mind was a fortune cookie I once got. And it said something about, or maybe it's a Chinese proverb, but it says you can have what you want most in the world, but to get it, you must give up what you wanted second and third. And I found that utterly, utterly, utterly chilling because at some level, I suspect there's a huge amount of truth in it. And she would be in that frame of mind, you know, all of a sudden she's decided what she wants most is her freedom, the mother this is. And of course, in order to get it, she has to give up the security of the family and 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 the support of, you know, her, her rather drab and easy but supportive husband. I mean, he is a supportive husband and he's a decent man. And and I always try to show how divorce can can work if people try hard at it. I mean, there's that lovely bit where she comes down the stairs and she's upset her mother horribly with a row and she hears her mother on the phone and she assumes that her mother is talking to the new boyfriend and about her and she's really angry because she's never even met this man. So how dare her mother speak to the boyfriend who doesn't even know her? about her. And then she catches a line that makes it absolutely clear that even though they've separated, the mother is feigning her dad. It's Mm -hmm. her dad that she needs the support from. The mother needs the support and the dad knows them both. And I think we see that more and more in divorces, because I think 
one of the things, I mean, I do write about separations and divorces because basically they're, you know, they're so, there's so many of them about. They're not always um, my stomping ground, but I, I'm interested in them. But even in my lifetime, the support for being recalcitrant in a parent after divorce from the friends, you know, taking sides has completely melted away. It's now socially understood, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That you should make an effort to make it easier for the children, uh, which is, of course, the point that I was making in Madame Doubtfire 30 years mm-hmm. ago. But I think that that point has has culturally taken over a bit to, to the vast improvement of divorced and separated children. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You took me by surprise with that phone call as well. And it was a lovely moment when it was revealed that it was uh, the father. I mean, Scarlett has a confidant too, just like Kitty and Helen in their support of each other. But Scarlett's friend Alice kind of shows just what a broad brush um, stroke we have with regard to divorce and separation. There are so many different instances and every family is different. And we get we get insights into so many of them in this book. Well, I'm glad. I mean, you know, every family is different and they are all different in their own ways. And I like Alice's family because, I mean, I love the idea of the parents just arguing about everything and anything across the table because there's elements of that in my family. I mean, my ex-hubby and my children's father is a philosopher. So he argues for a living, as it were. And then he comes home and he argues recreationally. And now that my daughters are both grown up and academics as well, when you see the three of them in a room, I mean, they just never stop arguing. I mean, it's not unpleasant. It's just usually academic. But they will argue about anything. They'll argue till the cows come home. So it's sort of the atmosphere in which, A, I was married, and B, I still see it on family occasions um, all the time. I'm fascinated by it. I mean, as a child reading I loved arguments you know where you know William is arguing with his mum of course I didn't of course I didn't you know I just I just loved arguments and I love them in books in the end of Madame Doubtfire there's an argument that goes on for 30 pages or something it's Mm. extraordinarily long I think there's a difference between argumentation and arguing as well and using that form of argument to really explore ideas and to explore feelings, because in mm. an argument, people do burst out with what they really think and uh, and to have both sides of it put. So, I mean, they're terribly useful. People just went away and sulked or went away and licked their wounds. There wouldn't actually be much of a, a novel, would there? Which, of course, is a little bit what Scarlett's dad has a tendency to do, is to go away and lick his wounds. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about Scarlett coming to accept really that her parents are flawed and that this is something that we all go through. But it's also about her learning that she is her own person separate from those parents. Well, I also think that one of the things that is most interesting about children of this age group is that up until you're about 10 or 11, your family is the most important thing. It's 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 the security blanket in which you live and it's going home is important. 
there, there does come a time when your friends become more of a security, <clears throat> more important to you. I'm, I'm not saying your parents aren't important because they still incredibly are, but because a lot of it is the carborundum of brushing up against them, the friends who are always on your side, you can sort of WhatsApp or whatever it is, your group, and, and say, my mum was just horrible to me, and everybody will picture, oh, what old bag, what a cow, what a trout she is, you know, blah, blah, blah. You'll get all this support. But it does seem that studies show that children of divorced parents depend even more on their friends than, than other children. And, and I think that's an interesting one, because obviously Alice has always been her best friend. But Alice and Jake and all these people become more important as she feels the distance between herself and her parents, because she is no longer quite so impressed by her parents. She's not impressed by what her mother's doing and done. And she's not impressed by how her father has um, responded to it. She basically thinks he's been quite wet. And so naturally, she will, without even realising what she's doing, she's going to need her friends more. And so through the book, we see her spending more time with her friends. And of course, there will be teenagers reading this story. But I was an adult reading it. And, uh, you know, at the end, I mean, you've already said that there's a happy ending, so no plot spoilers here. But um, I'm reading it thinking, I'll be your mother one day. <laughs> of course, you you have no idea uh, what you know what the happy ending is. You don't know whether the happy ending is her coming to terms, or whether the parents get back together, or whether the stepfather figure um, you know stays on the scene or not. I mean, so you know that you don't need a spoiler because it will unravel. Yeah, I do. I do think this business of you'll you'll go through it yourself, and there you might be arguing that what mum has done will serve her in good stead because that there's that bit at the halfway through the book where she goes on about, well, what would justify you in leaving? You know, she doesn't think her mum is justified in packing it in, but she thinks if you were married to a gambler and you earned all the money and then they just spent it all or a drunk or somebody who hit you. Or, and she goes through a whole list of people who, if you lived with them, You'd basically be mad to stay and mm. give your life over to supporting a relationship that essentially was not worth doing. Um, and, and she's asking herself, you know, well, was mum's life that bad? But these are terribly important questions that everybody who um, ever starts a long term relationship with anybody, marriage or not, has to ask themselves, is it worth it? And I thoroughly enjoyed Shades of Scarlet. And of course, I've enjoyed talking to you about it as well. Before we depart, I know you have another book coming out in February, Aftershocks. I wonder if you tell us a little bit um, about that. Well, Aftershocks is a, a very different sort of book. In my extended family, there was a death of a child. Now, I was quite removed from it in one way. But I was incredibly close to one of the people who was most battered about by, by this horrible loss. And I was concentrating on the business of grief. So it is a book about grief. And Louis has lost his brother in an accident. And, and it's an exploration. And I really have been asked to write about grief 
so often. I've never thought of how to approach it. But in this, there is a sort of distancing that came from reading, interestingly enough, an article in the London Review of Books about the tsunami in 2011 in Japan, where after that dreadful business with so many deaths, there are all these strange ghostly events and curious happenings and and the way in which the community dealt with it. And somehow the distance of that mirrored with the distance of me being close to this bereavement, but not that close. And so it is, it's partly a ghost book. It's partly a coming of age story. It's partly an adventure story, which is very unusual for me because I'm not good at adventures. I take the line of that explorer who said, I hate the very word adventure. To me, it just means something has already gone wrong. (laughs) That is my view of adventure, but I've been very brave in this. And I think it does talk about how people come to terms with great loss. And it's for older children, I would say it's for 10 plus. And I mean, actually, I read it for the first time all the way through again last week. And I thought this is actually really gripping. (laughs) I don't often think that. (laughs) Well, that's good to know because it's next on my reading pile. So (laughs) thank you so much for joining me in the reading corner, Anne. Thank you, Nikki. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform. <laughs>